Today we are continuing on with our summer sermon series, which is on the book of Ephesians. And oh, I don't know why, whoop, lovely whoop. Last week, Pete opened it. Um, and over the next few weeks, we're going to be working through uh, this book, um, a little section by section over, over the coming weeks. And just a little fun thing to do, maybe on a rainy summer's day. If you've never read the whole of the book in one go from beginning to end, it's a fun thing to do, a fun thing to do. It's an interesting thing to do because it will help you see how the picture of the letter um, fits together in one context. Because as we're taking out these sections and looking them, looking at them, what we're seeing is, is parts of a letter. This was a letter written by Paul to people. So we're, we're catching sort of half of the conversation. It's like listening to one side of a phone conversation. So uh, it's an interesting thing to do to, to read it all from beginning and see how it, how it fits together. And what we do when we read Ephesians is we, we read something of Paul's heart for the people in Ephesus, something about his longings, his deep prayers for the people, um, the body of Christ in Ephesus. And what within the book of Ephesians, there are these moments of kind of soaring prose, beautiful, poetic statements, and the, the longings of Paul's heart. And it can be really easy to read, to read over them and just be like, that's nice, sounds, sounds nice and interesting, and kind of skip on. Um, and the analogy is a little bit like, you know, if you eat a slice of pizza from Pizza Union... Bear with me. It's fine, maybe if you're hungry, and maybe if you've not been at a KXC event where we've served you pizza from Pizza Union for a while, you might even enjoy it. But if we're honest, each bite kind of tastes the same. And if we're really honest, each pizza kind of tastes the same. You've got this kind of carby-based, tomato-cheesy topping. And as you eat it, it's like it's fine. And you eat it and you move on. And I remember being taken to Ottolenghi's restaurant for my birthday a couple of years ago. And I had this goat that had been marinating for like two days. And then it was slow cooked for a week in its juices. And it was served with all these different sauces that all had these different flavors. And as you're eating it, there's this like unctuous kind of rich flavors and you're each mouthful, you're thinking, what are these? What am I tasting? Is it cumin? Is it za'atar? Is it garlic? What is it? And when we read a book like Ephesians, what can happen is we skim over it. We think, this is nice, this is great. But actually, if we sit in it, if we savor it, if we, if we chew over it, if we really plumb the depths of it, we discover these new flavors, these new, new ideas. And so the encouragement is that as we move through this series, there's a lot of content, a lot of big themes um, that we'll be cover, covering but just to let them sink in, kind of let them marinate, kind of really savor them. Because we'll be looking at some of the big themes, like what does it mean to be a functional church community, about unity and, and reconciliation? It's a, it's a letter that's about salvation and, and faith. And what does it really mean to know that you've been saved by grace? It's about spiritual warfare and, and the battle being raged against sin, the flesh, and the devil. And it's about a move from darkness to, to light. This arc of redemption, a kind of an all, the all things new gospel that we often talk about. And the passages we're looking at today are about this. They are about knowing that as a child of God, adopted into the family, saved by Christ, we have been literally lifted up out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of light seated in the heavenly realms. And we can experience that truth here and now. 
as the kingdom of God breaks into our lives and makes all things new. So we're picking up Ephesians today in chapter 1, verse 15, where we read this. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. This is the the heart of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, that they would know Jesus better, that they would understand the truth of who God is, that they would grasp this truth and live it out. What Paul is saying is, I just want you to know God more. I want you to know more of of his character, more of his grace, more of his love. I want you to understand who Jesus is, what it is he did for us so that we might be saved. If only you could grasp even more this wonderful truth. The um, Bible commentator, Dean Alford, wrote quite a well-known commentary on the book of Ephesians. And when he got to this passage, he said this, "Um, philosophy comes to man with the message, know thyself. The gospel meets man with a far more glorious and fruitful watchword, know thy God. In other words, the world tells us that the path to true freedom, to true enlightenment, is to look inside, to look at yourself. And the gospel tells us that the the path to real freedom is to look at God. And even more than that, the only way to really know yourself is to know God. That it is in the knowing and being known by Jesus that we are most truly free. And this is what Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus, that they would have this experience of of true freedom and healing that comes from pursuing the things of God. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. That the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. It's a bit of an odd um, phrase to our ears, but in the, in the context of the scripture and in the, the culture of, of Ephesus when it was written, the heart was understood to be the core of who you are. It's like the place of, of truest understanding, the place of real wisdom and knowledge. And what Paul is saying is that right at the center of your core, right at the center of your identity, that you would know the truth. More than, more than head knowledge, more even than the result of like an experience in worship, more than seeing a miracle or an answered prayer, but right at the core of your being, right in the center of your heart, that you would know the truth about who God is and the hope that he has called you to. I um, heard about an experiment that was done um, back in the 1950s, and and I've been hesitant to use this analogy in a sermon. Um, It's a bit gruesome, but then Pete gave that analogy of the wolf, if you were here there. Right, so I figure if Pete can tell the analogy of the wolf, I can tell you this story. So it's about an experiment that happened in the 1950s. Um, An American scientist called Carl Richter took some rats and he put them in buckets of water and he was timing them to see how long they'd be able to stay alive swimming. And he, like rats, they're meant to be, they're quite like aggressive creatures. They're, they're really strong swimmers. So he expected it to be quite a while. But what he, what he learned was that actually 
most of the rats died in about 15 minutes. They kind of gave up and they just drowned. He, so he, he took another set of rats and he put them in a bucket of water. And then just before it looked like they were about to drown, he fished them out of the bucket, dried them off in a like, little fluffy towel, gave them a rest, and then he put them back in the bucket to see what would happen now. And what he discovered was that these rats, who had been rescued once and then returned to their situation, would now swim for an average of 60 hours before they drowned and died. Um, <laughs> so it is... <laughs> It is a pretty gruesome experiment, but what it, but it, what it does, what it shows is something of the remarkable power of hope and expectation. And I sometimes wonder if we underestimate, undervalue the, the sheer power of hope. I, I was reading an, an article by a psychologist um, yesterday. It's somebody who works with victims of um, natural disasters like Hurricane Katrina, things like that, who um, these people who have lost everything, their homes, their possessions, even their loved ones. And he was writing about, about his work um, walking with them through the journey of, of, of recovery. And he was, he was writing about how those um, survivors that had sort of an inbuilt hope seemed to do much better at walking through the journey of recovery than those who were trapped in a sense of hopelessness. And he said, um, he said this interesting thing. He said, hope is the belief that circumstances will get better. It's not a wish for things to get better. It's the actual belief, the knowledge that things will get better. And he identified three features of those people that had this kind of hope, faith, gratitude, and love. Faith, the kind of the ability to believe in something um, bigger than, your, than yourself, Gratitude, that even in the face of incredible loss, that they were able to still be grateful for what they had. And love, that they had people that they loved and that loved them. And he said that these are the three markers of hope and the three things that would enable somebody to, to have hope, a hope that is fundamental to survival. And the Bible knows this really well. That there is, there is so much in the Bible about the sheer power of hope to change lives, to transform. And a hope that is built not on what we can do, not on what we can achieve, not on our, our own self-actualization, but on the power of Jesus. In Romans, Paul writes in Romans 5.5, 5, he writes about hope. And in, in my old NIV, it's translated as hope in God's promises does not disappoint. And in the more modern NIV, it says, hope does not put us to shame. And I love this kind of conglomeration of those two things, that if you hope in God's promises, you will not be disappointed, and nor will you be put to shame. And that same section from Romans 5, in, in the message paraphrase, says this, there's more to come. We continue to shout our praise, even when we're hemmed in with troubles, because we know how troubles can develop passionate patience in us and how that patience in turn forges the tempered steel of virtue, keeping us alert for whatever God will do next. In alert expectancy such as this, we are never left feeling shortchanged. Quite the contrary, we can't round up enough containers to hold everything God generously pours into our lives through the Holy Spirit. When we have our hope built on the promises of God, we're never left feeling shortchanged. It's a hope that doesn't disappoint, a hope that doesn't, will never put us to shame. And yet we walk in attention in the church, don't we? 
If you think about something like healing, you know, we, we pray for healing. We believe that God can heal. We believe that it is his character and his nature to heal. And yet all of us know of unanswered prayers. And so we hold the belief in the, the nature and power of a God who will heal alongside the reality of what we see in the world around us. What hope does is it asks us to keep praying, to admit the disappointment. Sure, it's not, it's not wishful thinking. It's, it has space for real pain, but it believes, it has conviction, it has faith that what we see in the here and now is not the end of the story, that every prayer we haven't yet seen answered, we will see fulfilled the other side of eternity. Paul writes, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. That power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that is working in our lives. It's the power that is outworking the redemption in this world. It's that same power that is bringing hope in our hearts. The same power that knitted bones back together, that healed wounds, that breathed new life into dead lungs, restarted a heart, conquered death, defeated the devil. That power is the power that is at work in our lives, opening the eyes of our hearts so that we might know the truth, the hope to which we have been called. And it's this power that we have access to. In um, Ephesus, there was a culture, there was in, in the whole region there was a culture, um, but particularly in Ephesus, there was a whole industry that had been built up around supernatural forces, the, the harnessing of them, the, the repelling them, the, the being safe from them through magic and the occult. And when Paul first goes to Ephesus, we actually you can read um, the story of the founding of the church in Ephesus in, in Acts, because Paul goes to Ephesus and he preaches the, the gospel, he preaches about Jesus. And when you read the story, you'll find find it in Acts chapter 19 and when you read the story what you read is about this 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 um, clash of two kingdoms this kingdom of darkness and evil that had was taken root that had taken root in this place and then this power encounter with Jesus and so many people became um, Christians began to follow uh, Jesus that that they took all of the shrines that they had they took all of the scrolls and the and the trinkets from their their life of magic and occult and they burnt them all and the, the people who'd made them, there was such a, a response, such a backlash, because they lost all their industry. And so there was actually a riot in Ephesus, because so many people turned away from that path and to the path of light. And it's an amazing story um, to read of, of this sort of power encounter. And, and Paul writes, um, or we read in Acts, um, that, uh, when Paul's leaving, he, he says the... Uh, in the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And it's this whole experience, this whole story of this power encounter. And when Paul is writing in Ephesus this letter to these people, what he's doing is he's reminding them of this power. He's saying, remember that power that happened when the church was first born. Remember how powerful God is. That power, that same power is still at work in you. 
the power of a living God that triumphs over all competing authorities. He puts it in the letter this way. He says, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Paul is reminding them that all of that stuff that you walked away from, that that power and encounter, remember the power of Jesus, a God who triumphs over all competing authorities. One time, um, years ago, when I was uh, living in Uganda, I was doing some work with uh, YWAM, and we'd gone up to work with a church up in some um, mountains doing kind of um, evangelism week with them. And on the first day, I was sent off. I went with this um, lady, Beatrice, from the church, and we went to a a nearby village. And we were going to do just meet people, do some door-to-door evangelism, hang out, um, get to know folk. And the very first home we walked past, there was this old lady sat outside. And we stopped to talk to her. I said what we were doing, and she wasn't interested in in Jesus at all. But she was telling us that she had this like crippled back. She couldn't she couldn't even sit up, let alone stand. And the pain from her back had given her really bad migraines. And so we asked if we could pray for her, and she said yes. So we kind of prayed a quick prayer and and left. And um, as we walked away, the woman Beatrice that I was with said that um, this one was never going to become a Christian because she was the village witch doctor. And she lived and operated in this other world of darkness and evil, and she would have nothing to do with the church. So fast forward a few days later, we'd been in this area for like a week, um, and we were putting on a party with the church to sort of celebrate all that God had been doing. Um, And we were holding this service, and the whole community um, had been invited to come. There was lots of joy and singing and, and dancing around. And at one point, this lady walked into the church, and she came dancing in. I just remember it. She came dancing up the aisle and straight up to the altar and put an offering at the altar and then, then danced away again. And Beatrice, my friend who'd been with me, came up to me and said, oh, that was the woman that we'd prayed for. And I was like, which woman? We pray for lots of women. And she said, the woman, the, the witch doctor from the first day. And this woman that we had met who'd been so crippled that she couldn't even stand upright, not even sit upright, had had such a power encounter from God that not only had she been healed of her back, not only had she been healed of her migraines, but she was coming into church to dedicate her life to Jesus, to leave behind her old life and follow Jesus. The power of the living God that triumphs over all competing authorities It always has and it always will. All petty idols fall away. All evil is conquered. The devil has been triumphed. And Paul is really insistent that we get this, that we get how this is taking place in the world and that how this has taken place in our own lives. And he writes um, in this section about being made alive in Christ. This truth that once we were dead and now we're alive. Once we were in darkness, and now we live in light. He says at the start of chapter 2, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of the world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. 
But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. There's some amazing equalizers in that passage. All of us have lived among them at one time. Like the rest, all we were by nature deserving of wrath. It is by grace you have been saved. And later when he says, not by works so that no one can boast. It is a gift of God. We were, all of us, caught in sin dead in our transgression, following the ways of this world, caught up in in gratifying the flesh. All of us were deserving of, of wrath, of the consequences of our sin. But we have been saved, not because of anything we've done, not by right behavior, um, not because of, of our own actions, but just because of the grace and gift of God, so that no one can boast, all equal before a gracious God. Once we were dead in our transgressions, but now we are alive in Christ. I remember a while ago praying um, with someone for her son who had been caught up in a whole load of of addictions. And um, we were praying together for him. And we we found ourselves praying um, these verses from Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. And it was a really powerful moment of, of prayer. And I remember it really clearly. And as we spoke these words over, his, over her son, what we were praying was that he would experience that lifting out of the slimy pit, that he would, be, he would experience being set free from the quicksand that he was held captive in, set upon a rock. And as we were praying, I was really conscious of how that had been true in my own life. Of moments I've been lifted up out of the pit. Moments I've been set free from addictions or anxiety or depression or the quicksand of evil, the sin that so easily entangles. And more than that, that, that at, in that moment, I knew that I was standing firm on a rock with a song of praise. And it was this amazing moment of finding myself both celebrating the truth that I knew in my own life and praying it over this person. And it's what we celebrate as a church every time we have baptisms that John was talking about earlier. The the KXC baptism services are always really super fun. There's this great moment of hearing everybody's testimony and then we each person goes in and the bats and pool comes up out of the water and as they come up, the whole church claps and whoops and cheers. And it's because in this moment, we're celebrating two things. We're celebrating that they once were dead and now they're alive, but we're also standing on the rock that we stand on knowing that once we were dead and now we are alive. God, who is rich in mercy, makes us alive with Christ. I was baptized as a, as a baby, and then when I was 18, I got um, reaffirmed my baptismal vows, I think is the official sentence, but I got baptized again. And um, it happened after a few years, uh, kind of a rocky few years as a teenager, and I was, I was in, in a moment when I'd, I was struggling a little bit, but I had had this experience of kind of recommitting myself to, to Jesus, and I hadn't actually been intending on getting baptized. We'd gone down to a river um, with some other people who were getting baptized, and I was just there sort of part of the party and uh, and as we stood there I just knew that I needed to get baptized and I went into the river and as I came up out there was this kind of almighty clap of thunder and I heard really clearly the words it is finished 
And it's not like everything changed in that moment for me. I still walked away feeling like I was, I was in this place of real wrestle. It, it was still years before some of the things were dealt with, before things like panic attacks were under control, doubts and insecurities, fear, disappointments. All those things are still part of, of all of our everyday existence. But the moment was really significant for me in, in two ways. Firstly, because it was a moment when I made a commitment that, that regardless of how difficult things were, regardless of the circumstances that I faced, I'd never not believe that God was real. And I'd always know that even when I couldn't see it, even when I didn't feel it, even when I didn't know how, I knew that still God would be working. And the other thing was, when Jesus breathed his, his last on the cross, he said the same words, it is finished. And he was talking about the inbreaking kingdom, the, the, the triumphing over death, the conquering of sin, the war that was won, the fighting was over, and the victory was still being worked out. Um, but what Jesus was saying was, it's won, it is finished. We'll only see the final victory of Christ at the end of time, but that victory is definite. And, and the same was true in my life, in all of our lives. We might not see the final victory over sin, the flesh, and the devil in this earth. It might take years for us to work some, some things out. We might, there might be areas in our lives that we struggle with until our dying day, but the victory is total and it is sure. It is finished. Jesus has won. Once we were dead, now we are alive. Once we were lost, now we are found. Once we were in the kingdom of darkness and now we live in the kingdom of light. And here's the thing about it is that it is all a gift of grace. It's all because of the grace of God. And what Paul goes and says over and over and over again is you have been saved by a gift of grace. You have been saved because God reached out to you. And this is the, where I want to end with this, these final verses of the, section, of the section where Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. And what's great about this is, is the onus, the kind of the imperative in this is that the activity is on God. It's God who reaches out towards us. It's a gift. So I'm going to invite you into a little bit of um, theological drama that's going on in the world um, today. You probably are not aware of it. It's only existing between a handful of people, but it's a very serious debate. And it's known as the Pistus Christu debate. Um, I know, I've got a word. There's a little um, slide here. This is uh, in Greek, Pistus Christu. Um, and it's to do with the translation, particularly of two verses. One in Galatians 2.16, where Paul writes, we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And the other one, this verse in Ephesians 2.8, where Paul says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And in a very poor summary, the debate is about how to interpret this phrase. Is Paul writing that we are saved by our faith in Jesus or that we are saved because of the faithfulness of Jesus towards us? So traditionally, interpreters translated it as faith in Christ. You are saved by faith in Christ, which for the one person in the room who cares is the objective genitive. Um, but more recently, theologians have said that it's probably more accurate to translate it as saved by the faithfulness of Christ, which is the subjective genitive. 
There's going to be a quiz next week. Um, So the question is, are we saved because we put our faith in Jesus? Or are we saved because Jesus is faithful towards us, faithful even to death on the cross? Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, so I'm not going to even venture my own opinion. But what I can say is that I find that there is something really beautiful about those who say that maybe it is both and. Maybe Paul was intentionally saying both. That we are saved both by putting our faith in Jesus Christ and as a result of his faithfulness towards us. Christ dwells in our heart both because we turn towards him, we put our faith in him and because of his unrelenting faithfulness towards us even when we are faithless. We are saved by grace, a grace that is found both when we turn towards Jesus in faith and that can only be found because Jesus is running towards us. How many times have I run away from Christ? Have I turned my back on God? Have I been faithless, filled with doubt, rebellion, a prideful determination to live my own way and then come back to Jesus on bended knee? to find that he's still waiting, still pursuing, still running towards me. His faithfulness in the face of my faithlessness. Christ dwells in our heart as an act of grace. And that changes everything. So the invitation today is really simple. It's an invitation to encounter that that truth, that, that Christ dwelling in your heart. It's an invitation to an encounter with hope, to experience a hope that literally saves your life, a hope that will not disappoint, that will not put us to change, that will never leave us feeling shortchanged. It's an invitation to experience real power, power that can set people free, power that can heal, that can transform, that can change lives. And it's an invitation to be made alive in Christ, to know yourself, once dead, now alive. And always knowing that it is a gift of grace.